This is the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. Open data and open access are coming waves in academia. Ross Mounts, a PhD student at the University of Bath in the UK, is an open science advocate and practices open science. I recently caught up with Ross in December 2012 in London to ask him about his reflections on open data and open access. Hi there, um, I'm Ross Mounts and I'm from the University of Bath. So I do research on comparative cladistics, uh, that is um, inferring the evolutionary history of taxa uh, through the use of morphology, uh, which is very important particularly for fossil taxa, fossil creatures, because we don't really get DNA from most fossils unless they're very, very recent fossils. And I think that's really important. There's a lot of data out there, and there's a lot of interesting meta-analyses to be done, looking at levels of homoplasy, tree balance, these kind of things. So can you uh, briefly describe what your PhD research is on? So my research is basically on comparative cladistics, that is, uh, working out the evolutionary relationships between taxa um, using morphology. And that's particularly important when analysing fossils because, you know, we can't really get DNA from fossils that are millions and millions of years old. Um, We can only get DNA from fairly recent fossils. And so we'd have no way of knowing uh, where fossils fit in the tree of life um, if we didn't have morphology. And so I I analyse both the methods but also the results you get from from the methods comparatively between groups, um, between, say, you know, kangaroos and birds. And I look at um, cranial characters and postcranial characters, you know, tooth characters and vertebral characters um, to to see if there's a difference in the kind of phylogenetic signal they give and if there's a consistent difference and if the rate of change in the signal between taxa is different and all sorts of meta-analyses like that. So, so I understand that you're going to be uh, done with your PhD soon? Yes, I'm writing it up as we speak. Um, hopefully I've got um, something in submission at the moment um, and yeah, writing up the other chapters and we'll hopefully submit by the middle of 2013 and then I'll go on to a postdoc with this research grant I've just got recently. Great. So uh, can you describe uh, a bit about your Panton Fellowship? Yes, so I got this Panton Fellowship for Open Data in Science from the Open Knowledge Foundation and it's money um, given to early career researchers to um, encourage and promote an open data culture in their area um, and it's, it's a really useful uh, fellowship, it runs alongside whatever you're currently doing so I'm currently doing a PhD and I'm kind of doing this project on the side um, but it's, it's got me into really interesting workshops and meetings and I've met some really amazing people doing this work and I'm also, um, as part of the actual applied component of it, um, doing some work trying to extract data from literature to actually um, liberate, if you like, research data from PDFs uh, to make it open data so everyone can actually use it um, immediately and freely, um, legally unencumbered. So, so you're, you mentioned that you're uh, involved in extracting data from uh, published papers. Can you, can you explain how you got involved in this and a bit more about what you do? So um, when I started my PhD, obviously to do these various meta-analyses, I needed data. 
So I knew of many hundreds and thousands of papers which contained this kind of cladistic data that I wanted. But as I was doing it, I discovered it's actually extremely difficult to get those data from those papers. I mean, they're embedded in a PDF, they're in a table sideways, sometimes there is an image file, sometimes if you email the author, they don't reply, they're on holiday, they simply don't want to give you the data. Uh, the author can be deceased, you know, so sometimes it's actually really difficult to get this data, even though technically it's published data and it's been published for years. Um, so I kind of got fed up with this um, and decided to do something about it, make people aware of how we could make this better for ourselves and how we should publish the data and not just words and analysis of the data. Um, and, and it's interesting when you do actually do do reanalyses re of the data, you find out that sometimes the published results don't fit um, what they say they did on the data, and that you know the the results are you know slightly wrong, slightly fudged, slightly slightly incorrect. So that was actually my first um, paper. I got a little um, one-page letter into Nature, um, just correcting this analysis of the of the fossil Dianea cactiformis, um, because the the analysis that they said they did just completely didn't correspond to the actual phylogeny that you get if you do the analysis they say they did on their data. Uh, and they, they published a rebuttal and stuff, but I mean, it's just incredible what you can get away with because no one seems to check the data. Um, I've been trying to push this phrase um, nullius in calculo, which is basically um, uh, take the calculation of no one because there's this Royal Society phrase um, called nullius in verba, which means take, take no one's word for it. Mm. And I think we should do exactly the same with data. And actually, if, if it's computationally feasible, rerun all the analyses in the paper. I mean, it's kind of reproducible research concept, stuff that Victoria Stodden's do, doing, runmycode.org, that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, for the seconds it takes to rerun these kind of cladistic analyses, it's actually worth it because you spot some really interesting discrepancies sometimes, and it, they're really significant discrepancies. So, so can you talk um, a bit more about the challenges uh, involved in extracting data from published papers? So you've got various different challenges. Um, some of them are formatting, um, and it, it still boggles my mind that in 2012 data is published in a PDF. I mean, it's completely inappropriate to put 99% of data in, 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 a, in a PDF. I can't think of any data type that should go in a PDF. We should be publishing data in the raw formats, whether it's R data, whether it's you know Nexus data for phylogeneticists. Always publish the raw, reusable format, and it it just seems to me that the publishers have been publishing it in PDFs for their convenience, uh, not for any kind of rational uh, reason. And you know science is based upon reuse, upon building upon previous contributions. If, if we keep on publishing things in non-reusable formats, we aren't going to be able to build upon that, that reuse. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one thing to actually put things in the right format. It's another thing to make it citable. So it's got you know a unique uh, URL, a DOI perhaps, uh, that would help things. Um, and then another thing is to actually the legal barriers. Sometimes um, it's kind of legally dubious of whether you can reuse data uh, without permission or not. I think you should be able to use anyone's published data without permission. Mm -hmm. 
because you know that's what we do science for if you wouldn't publish it if if you didn't want your data reused i mean if you d if you don't want it reused don't publish it it's that simple um, and there's a really interesting paper in BMC being published recently uh, stating um, open by default as the possible method uh, for all research publishing with CC0 as the um, default license, which I think is a great idea. Obviously there are ex exceptions to this if it's patient data mm -hmm. or sensitive mm -hmm. ecological records, but um, on the whole I think when you look at most scientific papers there's a lot of data that has no reason for protection really right. it should be shared and should be a, should be made open right. so um, so you touched a lot uh, touched on um, a number of issues around um, using um, data from published papers or are there do we do we have the tools like the software tools um, to to extract data efficiently or, or do those have to be to be created on on the whole I don't think we do um, PDFs are very, very difficult. I mean, that, that's the legacy. I mean, if we're talking about legacy data here, stuff that's already been published, stuff that's already been published in inappropriate formats like PDFs, then, yeah, we need to create PDF hacking tools, and that's what I'm working on um, in my Panton Fellowship with Peter Murray-Rost at Cambridge. Um, he's a chemoinformaticist working in chemistry and has done some amazing things hacking NMR spectra from PDFs and getting every single data point of say 2,000 data points in mm. a spectra, getting that back into reusable data, repurposable data rather than just an image. Mm. And that's exactly the same kind of problem I'm facing with phylogenetics. If I want the tree data, mm. trees are 99% of the time only published as an image. Mm. I mean, um, we, we have a paper out recently in BBC, BMC Research Notes showing, actually, that in the year 2010, only 4% of phylogenetic data was actually archived in a public archive like Treebase or Dryad, mm -hmm. and that there are just, you know, tens of thousands of papers out there with really interesting phylogenetic data, mm -hmm. but it's only published as an image in a PDF, and so you cannot reuse that data. You cannot, you know look at some ecological traits and test map that onto the phylogeny and test it. You can't do that. And that's that's a big shame. And so I think that should change. Um, so um, so this podcast is um, um, sort of mostly, usually about ecology. Uh, mm -hmm. So I wonder if um, you've noticed anything about uh, the field of ecology uh, with respect to open access publishing or, or, or data. Yes, um, I don't know how to say this politely, um, but I've, I've noticed, um, or I think, there's a slightly negative attitude towards PLOS journals in ecology. Compared to some other fields. Yeah, I mean, I mean the field I'm in, uh, in paleo paleontology loves PLOS One. Mm -hmm. I mean, they get fee waivers there quite regularly. Mm -hmm. They get unlimited figures to show the specimens you know, that they're describing. And so PLOS One is an innovation in paleontology, and people really appreciate that it's open access, mm -hmm. that you have fee waivers there, that you can have unlimited figures, and the reviewing is good. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether ecologists have just had one or two bad experiences with PLOS One, mm -hmm. um, but from what I see on Twitter and the like, um, people seem to be fairly um, averse to publishing in mm -hmm. PLOS One, and I don't know why. I think that's a shame because um, particularly in the UK where we've recently been mandated to publish only in open access from April the 1st 2013 right. we're going to have to start using these venues so I think 
we all need to actually you know look at that and think think more think harder about it right so in the u.s it seems like uh the, so the national science foundation um recently said that changed from from you know you things that will be counted from your from your research mm. won't just be papers but mm. products right mm. so um and that's across you know biology so including ecology so mm -hmm. so in some ways that'll be a stick to make uh, ecologists uh, a little more um yeah. Um, share, sharing their data more, at least. Yeah. Not necessarily um, open access journals, but. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, o open access and open data are two different things. Right. Um, people know me quite a lot as an open access person, but really, I started out on this as an open data guy. Um, and yeah, open data is a really interesting issue. And it, it's great that the NSF 2013 grant proposal guidelines are now recognizing. Mm -hmm. Um, research outputs rather than research publications that specifically includes data and software and I think that's great because data is hugely undervalued in the current scientific par paradigm so it'd be great if everyone could have a section on their CV listing their data sets with unique DOIs, you know, citations to those tracked, yeah. and then you can show your data impact as well as your publication impact as well as your software impact. Yeah. I think that's the future definitely. Have you noticed any uh, changes in uh, data accessibility in papers um, since you started, I guess, started your PhD? Yeah, so since I've started my PhD, um, there's been a few initiatives that have really taken off and made things a lot better. So, as I'm sure everyone knows, Dryad is a really great archive, and that's been um, widely adopted in the evolutionary journals. I don't know so much about ecological journals. I, I wish they would adopt it because I think Dryad's great. Um, and actually, in, in my area, in paleontology, the paleontology journals have been really slow to get on with data archiving. Mm. The Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology has kind of mentioned in an editorial that they would like their authors to submit data to MorphoBank and yeah. Dryad, but they haven't really enforced it. And so, as a consequence, hardly any other paleontology journals have said anything, except for the um, American paleontology journals, which have done great. So that's Paleobiology and Journal of Paleontology. They've got a good policy. But um, aside from that, it, the, the, the policies are just like, you must make your data available upon request, mm. which is a system which really doesn't work. There have been yeah. many, many papers showing this, that this whole email the author for the data system does not work. It has about a 25% success rate. And then one of those problems is uh, email addresses change as exactly. uh, people move around. So Now, people say that the ORCID system, uh, the new researcher identifier thing, will, will alleviate that problem, but it won't because there's so many other problems. It's not just the fact that email addresses change. It's, you know, the authors die, the yeah. authors are on holiday for six months, the yeah. authors are in the field for six months. Mm -hmm. I don't want my research slowed down just because you know one author with this excellent data set happens to be in Mongolia mm -hmm. at the moment you know when they could have just put it in Dryad mm -hmm. and that would save everyone a whole load of hassle mm -hmm. so yeah initiatives like Dryad, uh, MorphoBank, Figshare, Lab Archives, CCAN mm -hmm. um, they're really good and they've only fairly recently come up and they're still you know taking their while to be adopted um, but yeah, it's really promising, and I, I really hope that trend continues, because I think it's the future. It has to be the future. Mm -hmm. We can't carry on with the system of emailing the author for data. It just doesn't scale. I mean, you and I both do meta-analyses, mm -hmm. and so you know that 
It's great if you just want one data set from someone, you can email them for it. But if you want to do a meta-analysis of 100 data sets, 100 published papers, yeah. trying to email 100 different authors is not, not feasible, frankly. You will not get 100 data sets after you try that. To finish off, I think uh, I can safely describe you as a, an open science advocate. Why, why do you think this is? Well, you know, I, I wasn't born this way. Um, <laughs> I, I discovered that openness was actually really necessary in academia, to be honest. I mean, when I was a master's student, I didn't really know about open access. I didn't really know about open data. But then when I actually started trying to do serious research, I realized all the kind of unnecessary obstacles that could be fixed if we just had a little bit more intelligent openness. You know, I'm not a fan of openness for openness sake. It's got to be openness for a reason, openness for benefits. And so the Royal Society have this excellent report called Science as an Open Enterprise, and I really recommend you read it if you're interested in you know, the pros and cons of openness. And they've really come out strongly in favour of openness, and that's why um, Research Councils UK is really strongly pushing openness at the moment. That's why all UK researchers next year will have to publish open access, because they realise you know, the overall benefits of just being a little bit more open about things, both data, of, of you know, papers, actually really benefits the entire system. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's not just altruism, it, it benefits yourself. Open access papers receive more citations, because obviously more people can read them. Mm -hmm. That seems fairly self-intuitive to me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there, there's so many benefits, and it's not just openness for openness sake, it's intelligent openness. And ever since I've been involved with the Open Knowledge Foundation, that's just increased my awareness of how not just in ecology, not just in paleontology, but across the board, you know, in economics, they have these problems with open data. Mm -hmm. um, in the humanities, they have problems. And e even in society, if we're talking about open government data, there's been a big push for that here in the UK. And actually, we've, we've had a lot of really cool stuff come out of that, like open corporates. So you can actually find out, you know, all these different kind of satellite companies that HSBC and all, all these big corporates have through the power of open data. The power of open is immense and we really just need to harness that and actually have more open data out there, have more open access, mm -hmm. and then we can do more really cool stuff, more research innovation. Yeah. Great, well thanks, thanks for doing the interview. Thanks, it's cool. I have been speaking with Ross Mounts, a PhD student at the University of Bath. For the Journal of Ecology podcast, I'm Scott Chamberlain.